Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 18, 17 through 25. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Mm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Melissa. And thank you guys just for leading us so well. Um, so good to be with you. Uh, we, my family and I, we were gone for a few weeks, and I just have to say, I love this place. Love you. If I've never met you, I still love you. And so it's just a joy to be with you uh, and to hear God's word, to sing his praises. And so as we continue on, let us take a moment just to, just to pray and ask for the Lord's blessing uh, on the teaching of his word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come to you in prayer, asking that you would, by the power of your spirit, open our eyes to see truth. Lord, any barriers or obstacles that keep us from knowing you, seeing you, delighting you, trusting in you, following you with our whole being, Lord, would you remove them, that we might see you, that we might, as we sing, transfix our eyes upon Jesus in this time. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our Redeemer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, again, truly, it is, it is a, a joy to be here. Um, being, being away for, for two weeks, missing two Sundays, I was just surprised how much I do love gathering with God's people and with you all, and so it is a joy. And, but I have to admit, uh, coming back from a, a wonderful family vacation uh, and hitting the ground running, having to prepare a sermon on the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is rather jarring, to say the least, uh, especially when it's a story that, that I've personally wrestled with uh, in my life as, as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor. It's hard to get my mind and heart wrapped around it. Uh, on so many levels, this is a challenging story. And perhaps there's no other story in the entire Bible that is equated with God's judgment and wrath more than the story of Sodom and Gomorrah even more than the story of the flood, because at least the flood, you have like, you know, cute animals and rainbows at least to have some kind of redemption, but, but there's none of that in this story. And, and even if you've never read the Bible, even if you have never been to church, if this is your first Sunday, like, like odds are, like when you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, you're not thinking like, that sounds like a wonderful vacation spot, you know? Is that in your Tuscany? Like, like no one's wondering if this is a place we should visit, if there's Airbnbs for rent. Like this is a word, a city that we associate with judgment and with condemnation. 
So much so that, I mean, even in your minds, we, the, the negative connotation comes up because the, even the phrase like hellfire and brimstone, like we get that from this story. And I'm sure that the Yankee Candle Company has not captured those scents in their line of products. Uh, but, but again, this story in all seriousness and, and, and really try to bring a sense of soberness to this is that this story has also been used by many in the church to justify the mistreatment, the alienation, and, and the, frankly, just the hatred of LGBTQ people. And, and so, so you have that complex nature of this story. And then on top of that, you have the strangeness of Lot, who is apparently the hero of the story, doing something so egregious as offering his daughters up to be abused by the mob outside his house. Like, how do we make sense of this story? And how can the God in this story be good? And so there's a lot to unpack. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope you have them open to Genesis chapters 18 and 19. And there's a lot to cover here, and, and there's probably more than we can do um, in one sermon on a Sunday morning. But, but I want to kind of set the stage in the context of where we are. So if you're new, we've been journeying through the book of Genesis. Uh, and and we, we, last week we saw basically how God had sent messengers, essentially angels, uh, to Abraham and Sarah. And they shared with him the news that they would indeed have a son this time next year. But as the story unfolds, we find that these messengers were not sent for that purpose alone. In fact, their primary mission was to go and do some reconnaissance work, if you will, to find out how corrupt and wicked the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah had actually uh, become. And, and just for the sake of simplicity and brevity, I'm just going to refer to the cities as Sodom, just like just one uh, city, just to not be saying both together. But, but if you look at chapters 18 and uh, verses 20 through 21, uh, we see kind of this, this reconnaissance mission that God has sent these mes messengers on. It says, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, this doesn't mean, let me clarify, this doesn't mean that God literally has no idea what's happening down there. It's not like that the clouds were so thick. It's like, what is going on? But rather, what this is communicating is something that God is trying to show that he relates to humanity. It's a way of God letting his human creation understand that his judgments upon the earth are never flippant, never vindictive, and never reactionary. Uh, and this is very uh, starkly contrasted to the competing gods in the ancient Near East who were very capricious, whose, whose actions really mimic that of a child more than a divine being. But in this story, God is showing us that his, his acts of judgment are always made for good reason and always made with the best intel, if you will. And so that's what is being communicated as God is sending these messengers to report back, so to speak. God is showing us that he executes his judgments for good reason and with the right intel. And, and, but but even, even if I say that, like, okay, I can understand that. God's trying to relate to us as humans in this story. But, but what on earth warranted this kind of judgment where the entire city was wiped away and destroyed by fire and destruction. What could possibly warrant this kind of judgment? And, and what I want to first kind of bring our attention to is this idea that the sin of the city is more than what we see. The sin of the city is more than what we see, which is very hard to say seven times in a row, but the sin of the city is more than what we see. And, and, and let me explain what I mean by that. As I mentioned earlier, 
Oftentimes, this story is used as a proof text to kind of justify that, that any type of sexual behavior outside of God's design boundaries of between one man and one woman, this text is typically used to be the proof text for why any kind of sexual behavior outside of God's design is sinful and wrong. And, and I want to be very clear here. I don't think that's the main purpose of this story. It's typically told that way. We tend to think that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was really because of their sexual perversion and particularly their homosexual perversion. But I believe that there's a far greater warrant of judgment than that in this story. And, and it's true. The main episode we see in chapter 19 is the men of Sodom. They're gathering around Lot's home, and, and they are basically demanding that, that Lot release his guests, which were the messengers God sent, they're demanding that, they release, that Lot release these guests so that they might force themselves sexually upon them. And so that's very much an, egre an egregious act, to be sure. But in this story, I believe that there's far more than just that sexual perversion that warrants this justification of God's judgments. To say that, that Sodom was destroyed purely for sexual perversion is a truncated conclusion that doesn't actually take into account the full story and really the full text of Scripture itself. And so what I want to say, and, and, and please don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? That's one of my favorite expressions. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that, that sexual deviation outside of God's design is okay. What I am saying is that this is not the primary justification for why God brought about judgment. Yes, there is a sense in which when we deviate away from God's good design for human sexuality, we unweave ourselves, we, we actually short-circuit our own joy, that it unravels human flourishing, absolutely. But that is not ultimately what the, the picture of God's judgment is about here. And, and as a side note, if you want to kind of delve into this subject of, of human sexuality in greater detail, you can go back. We, we preached on this earlier in the Genesis series on April 14th. You can go look at that sermon. Uh, on our website, we have a position paper on God's design for human sexuality. So we encourage you to, to pursue those resources. But what I want to show this morning is that there's a bigger reason for why Sodom was destroyed, why God brought about his judgment, and it may not be exactly what we tend to think because I think the sin of the city is more than what we see. So let me, let me explain kind of what I mean by this. Um, the story begins before the judgment of Sodom takes place. There are these two identical episodes that take place in the opening chapters of chapter 18 and 19. And in both instances, we see the, the heroes of the story, if there are any, Abraham and Lot, showing an incredible amount of hospitality and kindness towards these out-of-town visitors who have come to them. In Genesis 18, verses 4 and 5, this is how we see Abraham responding to the messengers God sent to them. Abraham says, Let a little water be brought and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree while, uh, rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And so, so Abraham, Abraham receives these, these men who are, I mean, clearly like out-of-towners. They're not from around here. And he welcomes them in and shows them a unique sense of hospitality and love and compassion in serving them. And he goes above and beyond. I mean, this is, this is like Chick-fil-A hospitality, y'all. Like, like you, can, you can hear Abraham even saying, like, it's my pleasure after his guests say thank you, like every single time. I can hear it in Abraham's voice, can't you? 
But then, then as the messengers make their way from, from Abraham to Lot in the city of Sodom, we see a very similar episode. And that's not just for repeat's sake, that's on purpose. In Genesis 19, verse 2, we read these words of how Lot receives these out-of-town guests. My lords, please turn aside your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Both of these accounts of Abraham and Lot showing this unique hospitality to these out-of-town guests is meant to be contrasted with the behavior of the city of Sodom. They are here for pur- on, on purpose to contrast what takes place following in the city of Sodom. And what takes place? Well, again, the, the, the men of Sodom come to Lot's home uh, where he has, is entertaining and caring for these out-of-town guests, and they demand that, that Lot release these men so that they might abuse them sexually. And so, so not only has the city of Sodom failed to welcome in, to greet, to care for, to serve uh, those that have come in from outside, they're actually seeking to abuse them and use them for their own selfish pleasure. And so, yes, there is very much a sense of they have deviated away from God's design for sexuality, and that is part of the judgment But when we understand the context, the bigger picture here is that they have failed to love an outsider. They have failed to show hospitality. Their greed had turned them inward. It had corrupted them. It had made them hollow. Their greed and their pride, as well as their sexual perversion, is what caused them to turn inward and to reject others. And, and, and before you start thinking, like, this is a crazy theory you're coming up with, Reed. Like, how do you write sermons? Like, uh, th- this is, I mean, agreed by scholars, but even before we get to scholars, the biblical authors themselves affirm this. When we read the story of the Bible in its context, we see that this is actually what's taking place. The prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 16, we read these words as he accounts the reason for God's judgment upon Sodom. Ezekiel 16, verse 49 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. So Ezekiel is speaking a word of exhortation to God's people. And he says, This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. There's nothing mentioned here about their sexual misconduct, which is indeed true. It's not like Ezekiel didn't know about it. But the lion's share of of God's judgment upon Sodom, according to Ezekiel, is because Sodom was a proud city, was a greedy city, a materialistic city that lived in such excess and luxury that they completely disregarded the care for the outsider and the poor. Similarly, the the prophet Isaiah, as he opens up in chapter 1 of Isaiah, he declares, he's speaking to Israel again, and he compares them to Sodom. And and what he says in verse 10, he says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. And so he's comparing God's people to the quintessential city of of judgment. And he says, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And then what goes on is basically an exhortation to God's people to pursue justice and righteousness and care for the poor which culminates in verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's case. Again, uh, Isaiah is speaking to God's people, 
And in comparing them to Sodom, he is calling them to repent and to pursue a life of justice that cares for the poor. Again, do not hear what I'm not saying. I am not dismissing or minimizing the sin of of sexual perversion of any way. But what warranted God's judgment, ultimately, what spoiled and corrupted Sodom was their greed, their pride, their selfishness, their ease of luxury that led them to disregard the poor, the marginalized, and those in their midst. And and to show just how corrupt Sodom had become, this is just fascinating. Look at the way in which um, Moses, as he's telling this story, the way in which he compares Lot to the rest of the city. Lot, who's the hero of the story, if there is a hero, Lot is the, the one described as the only righteous one in the city of Sodom. And this man is inches away from actually giving his daughters over to the mob outside his house. And so as the mob is saying, let these men come out, we wanted to abuse them, Lot's great idea as a diversion is to say, how about you take my daughters instead? This is is the citizen of the year, people. This is Lot, the righteous man. If he is the most righteous man in the city, and he's willing to give his daughters, and even if it's just a diversion, and it's really a hollow offer, it's a terrible idea. And thanks be to God, it, it didn't come to fruition. But, but this man is described as the righteous one in the city, the only one. How wicked must this city be if the most righteous man in the city is someone who's willing to give his daughters to be abused? And so Lot is compared as a saint to the city of Sodom. Now, I'm sure there are some of you who are thinking like, okay, I, I can kind of get this, but like really, like, are you leading me to believe that the reason God destroyed a city utterly is because they weren't nice to out-of-towners? Because like their bed and breakfast got a bad Yelp review? Like, is that really why Sodom is destroyed by God? It, it kind of feels like saying like the, re- the real reason Al Capone uh, was a criminal is because he was arrested for tax evasion. Which is true. I don't know if you know that. That's what actually ultimately got Capone behind bars. But he was guilty of way more crimes of a vile nature than just tax evasion. In the same way, we might be looking at the story and saying, this kind of judgment doesn't seem to fit the crime. It doesn't seem fair. How are we to conclude that this kind of behavior of, yes, selfishness is wrong, greed is wrong, uh, not caring for the poor is wrong, but like, does that really warrant God's judgment? And that's a fair critique, and I get that. That's the critique I was like offering this text as I was wrestling through it this week. And I, I'll be honest, I have not prayed more over a sermon in recent years than this sermon. But I wonder, I, I think the reason why we have that critique of the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime, I wonder if it's because, the reasons why we think this is because the love for stranger is more important than we realize. Is it possible that the reason we struggle with this story of judgment is because we don't fully grasp how important, how central, how vital, how how essential and integral to God's mission is of loving and caring for our neighbors and strangers. Perhaps what this shows is that we don't realize how central showing extravagant hospitality and love of stranger and neighbor is to God's mission to to the flourishing of humanity and to the glory of God. Maybe we don't see how central that is. Perhaps we don't see how dangerous 
our greed and our materialism can, can bring about a sense of hollowness to us. Maybe we don't see how serious that sin is. Perhaps we are so isolated and insulated and inward focused that, that we have been blinded to God's call on all of us who, who claim to follow Jesus and worship Yahweh. Perhaps we've been blinded by his call to seek and work towards justice for all people. Because in fact, in the same context, right before the story of Sodom's destruction, God is speaking about Abraham, and he's like, should I, should I let Abraham in on this story about what's about to happen? And in Genesis 18, we see something very profound about God's call on Abram. In Genesis 18, verse 19, we read these words. God says, for I've chosen him, referring to Abraham, I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him, which, which if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a descendant of Abraham by faith. He says, I've, I've called him commit, to command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How? By doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Friends, what this means is that, again, if we claim to be worshipers of, of the, the God of Scripture and followers of, of his Messiah, Jesus, then what that means is that we must be a people who work towards righteousness and justice. That as we think about the callings that God has on our life and the place we find ourselves serving and working the majority of our time, that that is a place God has sent us to love and serve our neighbors, strangers, and even our enemies. In, in commenting on this very text, on this very story, uh, theologian Bruce Waltke says this, in describing broadly the righteous and the unrighteous, Waltke says this, the righteous are those who inconvenience themselves for the good of others. The unrighteous are those that inconvenience others for their own good. Did you catch that? The righteous inconveniences themselves for the good of others. The unrighteous inconveniences others for their own good. And so the question, the question for us this morning, for all of us, not, not just of us uh, as individuals, but us as a church, as a church family, as a city, as, as a community, as a nation for that matter, is this, are we righteous? Are we a righteous people? Do we desire, do, our, do we have this posture of saying, because of God's grace towards me, because of his ultimate inconveniencing of himself for my good, I am willing to inconvenience myself for the good of others? Are we a people so radically changed and captivated and compelled by the mercy of God that it leads us to be a people who are generous with all that we have, who seek to extend extravagant hospitality to strangers in our midst, to neighbors that we know and don't know? Are we willing to do this as we seek the common good of all people and the glory of Christ Jesus? As we want to be, as we are fulfilling this work that God has called Abraham to and that we, by faith, are a part of, of being a blessing to all the nations, are we seeking to pursue justice for all people? In her really, really great book, Kingdom Calling, um, Amy Sherman drives this point home so well in connecting the promise to Abraham of being a blessing to all nations to the work that God has called all of us to. She says this brilliantly. The purpose of all of these blessings that we all have is simple to state and difficult to live. We are blessed to be a blessing. 
Our generous Heavenly Father desires us to deploy our time, talents, and treasure to offer others foretastes of the coming kingdom. Those who do so are called the righteous. What what Sherman is describing in some ways, and, and I know he'd hate if I said this, but he's describing a righteous person like Jonathan Langford. He's describing a person who sees his work or her work through the lens of God who says, I've called you to be a blessing. Your work is not about personal compensation, but it's about the contribution towards the good of others. Do you see your work and the place that God has called you, whether it's paid or unpaid, whether it's in the home or outside the home, do you see that God has called you and sent you there to be a blessing to others? I mean, don't, and, and, I mean, don't you long to be a righteous person? Don't you long to have this to be described of you? And this is what I believe the story is telling us. And so, yeah, we might look at the story of Sodom's destruction and say, how could God be so judgmental? How could he be a God so full of wrath? But as we step back and look at this story in, in its broader context and see the big picture, to see that the, the, the sin of the city is, there's more to it than what we can see. And that loving the stranger is more important than we realize. The question we should ask of this text, of us as individuals and us as a community, and that's important, those are very important, that we shouldn't just think about this individually, but collectively, is this, it's not how could God be so judgmental, we should ask, will we be swept away with the wicked? Is there any sense in which there's an aspect that we are going in the way of Sodom in some way, shape, or form? And I love how Jonathan said this. We would would be precariously naive if we thought that the problems of the world were all outside there and not actually in here. And to do honest, reflective work in seeing, is there a sense in which the story of Sodom is my story. Do I see the sense in which I have deviated away from God's design for human sexuality? Do I find that I have been guilty of great greed and selfishness, of great excess of luxury to the extent that it is at the expense of others? And I have to, I mean, like, we should ask ourselves, do we have, are we marked by something known as extravagant hospitality? for those who we do not know, for those who would be classified as strangers. And I have to admit, it's not hard to see that in my own heart. As I said, this has been a sermon that I've been praying over a lot this week, but but it's, it's not hard to see it in the heart of our nation. I mean, we all, we all live in abundance, myself included, relatively speaking. And we can find ourselves very easily being inhospitable towards outsiders, people who are different than us. And while I I know, I know this is a polarizing subject, but I I can't help, I mean, as I was praying over this and, and reflecting on this, I couldn't help but think about the inhumane conditions that many migrant children are in as they're detained in government facilities at our southern border. And, and, and hear me, like, I, I know that this is a complicated issue, and it does not have simple solutions, but, but my goodness, like, it should no less break our hearts. It should no less lead us to, to, to lament. It should no less bend our knees in prayer and build capacity for compassion. I'm not saying what our immigration policy needs to be, but all I'm saying is that this should be something that breaks our hearts and builds our compassion for capacity, builds capacity for compassion for others. 
whether they live across the street, across town, or across the border, we ought to be a people who show radical hospitality towards the strangers in our midst. But the question is, are we known for that? And as just a, as a quick side note, if you're, if you're interested, if you, if you feel led to kind of respond or want to learn more about kind of what's going on at the southern border, I, I'm not advocating one way or the other, but World Relief is a phenomenal org- Christian organization uh, that works with uh, the local church in caring for the most vulnerable in our midst around the world. And so that's just a great resource I'd recommend to learn more about if you're interested. But, but again, I know this story is difficult to hear. And, and, and to focus on this other aspect, w- apart from the, maybe the more conventional way that we read the story, it hits a little closer to home in some ways. And, and so in response, it's like, so what, what do we do now? Like, what is the, the relevant wisdom of this story in our time today? And so let me, let me offer three really quick things for us to consider as we seek to live and pursue justice and righteousness sent out by God in the places God has called us. And the first thing I would say is this. We should love the strangers in our midst. There's a lot of strangers in our life. There's a lot of strangers in this room, so to speak. And we should ask ourselves the question, what is, what is our view and our behavior towards people who are different than us, who are strangers? Do we allow fear to dictate how we treat other people? What is our attitude and heart posture towards strangers? And, I, and again, I think it's important for us to ask the question not just individually, but collectively. What are we doing as, as a people to cultivate a a church family, uh, a community, a neighborhood, a workplace, a school, a city, where people are known and loved and welcomed and cared for? And does it influence the way in which we speak to others, interact with others? Does it it influence the the way in which we live and where we live and, and where we shop and how we vote and how we speak to people, how we interact with them? How are we seeking to love the strangers in our midst? Second, we should steward what we have for the good of others. We should steward what we have for the good of others. Are we a people, like, like Amy Sherman said in that quote, are we a people who use our time and talent and treasure to rightly order our communities, to, to peel back the brokenness and to bring redemption to our communities, neighborhoods, places of work, schools, and city? Because here's the thing, this time tomorrow, all of you are going to be somewhere where for the most part, all of us are going to be somewhere where we have the choice to say, am I going to live for my own good and serve my own needs? Or am I willing and able to look at the needs of my community and say, where is God sending me? Who is he calling me to love and to serve and to care for? What will we choose? So we should love the stranger amidst, steward what we have for the good of others. And lastly, we should repent of our sin. That we should, we should not be so naive to think that, that there is some aspect in which we can be guilty of the same things that warranted judgment in the city of Sodom. That we should be willing to honestly repent of the greed that spoils us, of our pride that, that weakens us, of our materialism that numbs us, of our sexual perversion and sin that unravels us, and our lack of compassion that darkens us. It's foolish, again, to to think that the problems of the world are out there and not in here. We should be willing to repent and to honestly reflect and ask ourselves, is there a sense in which I am going the way of Sodom in some way, shape, or form? Now, again, I know this story is hard to hear, and it's one that has caused me to pause several times, as I mentioned. 
And while I, I do hope that the severity of this story does kind of sit with us a bit, that it would awaken us to the reality that our sin is probably greater than what we can see, and, and that loving uh, strangers and loving our neighbors is more important than we realize, I also pray that we would come to rest in this powerful truth that the mercy of God is more than we could hope for. The mercy of God is more than we could hope for because before the destruction of Sodom, Abraham is having this dialogue with God and it's this kind of interesting, it appears to be this like childish negotiation. But in Genesis 18 verse 25, we read these words, Abraham says, far be it from you, referring to God, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And what follows after that exchange, the destruction of Sodom, yes, it is a story of God's justice, but in the midst of it, it is also a story of God's mercy. Because in this story, we see Lot, who's the closest thing to a hero, being rescued and spared, who truly, in, in many ways, was not deserving of rescue. And yet he was. And, and God even used Lot to call the city of Sodom to, to turn from their wickedness, and yet they refused. And so indeed, God will punish evil, but he will also, by his grace, extend to us mercy by removing the punishment that we deserve. And so, yes, God's judgment will come upon us if we remain in our ways, but thanks be to God that his mercy is available for those who ask and who call upon his name and seek forgiveness. And I know, I know no other place where the justice of God and the mercy of God come together more powerfully and beautifully than at, than at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, what, what do we see? We see God's justice being poured out upon Christ, destroying sin, the sin of the world as it inhabited the Savior of the world. But we also see mercy because we deserve to bear God's judgment. But instead of us being the recipients of his judgment, Jesus became that recipient God did not just sweep our sin under the rug of the universe, so to speak, but he justly and definitively dealt with it by sending Christ to die in our place. But in so doing, he extends mercy to us by saying, yes, the punishment of sin will fall, and indeed it did, but it did not fall on us. It fell upon Christ so that we would receive his grace. As we sing in that beautiful song, what riches of kindness he lavished on us, his blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Amen. Friends, when we come to find that there is more to our sin than what we can see, God's mercy is magnified because we understand the cost that it endured through Christ Jesus to destroy our sin. But what we also see is that when we come to find God's mercy towards us in making us in right relationship with God when we were sinful strangers, that compels us to be a people who seek to extend that same love and grace and hospitality towards others, not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of adoration and joy for what Christ has done for us. And so friends, what I want you to know and hear today is that Jesus stands ready and able to extend his mercy to you by forgiving you of your sin completely and once and for all. And he invites you and he invites me 
to show that same mercy towards those in our lives, towards our neighbors, towards our strangers, towards our enemies, for the good of all and the glory of his name. But the question for us is, will we trust him or will we be swept away with the wicked? Let's take a moment to pray. Father, I, I come to you in prayer with, yeah, just these are sobering words, Lord. And I don't want to be so naive to think that there isn't a sense in which I am, I am guilty of the very sins that brought about your judgment in this city. Lord, I, I pray that you would awaken me, awaken us, show us the blind spots in our lives, show us where we are greedy. Show us where we have deviated away from your good design for, for life, for intimacy, for sexuality. Lord, show us where we have become so enthralled with materialism and possessions that it has kept us from being able to be generous towards those around us. Lord, help us to see your great mercy towards us as we were strangers and you made us children. May that truth transform us. And Lord, may you draw those who are far now from you and draw them near through the power of the cross and through the power of your Spirit. Lord, equip us and enable us to be your people, reflecting your goodness in this world. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.